0: Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. We should, Lord willing, finish the chapter. 22 years ago tomorrow, 9 nearly 3,000 Americans died in the terrorist attacks that took place on that day. And Americans and people the world over were left wondering, where is God in all of this? I I think it's interesting to to note that before 9-11, New York City was one of the least church cities in America, and the number of people attending an evangelical church today is like four times what it was in New York City compared to what it was before the 9-11 attacks. But people were left wondering, where is God in all of this? Is God real? Does he have a plan? Why, if he is real, if he does have a plan, why is there so much evil in the world? And today we continue to ask the same question. As Christians, we can look around and we can say, where is God? Why does he allow all this evil? We, in our country, experience racial ideologies on both sides that pit countrymen against one another. Abortion, though it's no longer protected by... Roe versus Wade seems to be winning more and more legal protection in many states across the country. And transgender ideology is being pushed by our cultural elites with with no sense of thinking about what is this doing to our children, to our civilization. Lord, we might ask, where are you in all of this? The scriptures, in one sense, don't answer that deepest, one of our deepest questions there why why would God allow the world to become this way why in the beginning did he allow Adam to fall? why would he allow sin to exist? but while we can spend all day wringing our hands over that trying to figure out the answer to that question it's a pretty deep philosophical question why is there evil in the world why does God allow it Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord and we aren't going to get that answer and it won't Worrying about it won't help us get through life. Rather, what we need are a set of beliefs, truth with a capital T, not just beliefs, but things that are true, that will allow us to navigate and live in the world as it is, to have hope in the world as it actually is. We live in a world full of sin and pain and death. Do we know why God allowed that? No, we don't. But we do know what he has done about it. And if we observe carefully as we look to the scriptures with eyes to see and ears to hear, what we will see is that he does all things well. So Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31, says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Ephphatha," that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, before we go any further, I know I've said some of this stuff over and over again, and I'm going to keep saying it over and over again because I think it's really important. It's two of my assumptions related to the Bible. Number one, when... When I pick up the Bible, I think the most important thing I can see or learn or hear is what it's teaching me about Jesus. And I, I have that assumption because that's exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So if we pick up the scriptures looking for those things that lead us to life, and we aren't actively looking for and seeing Jesus, we're missing the point. That's what Jesus says. He's speaking about the Old Testament there. So how much more the New Testament where he's made explicit. And I also assume based on John 1, 14 to 18, that when the eternal word, the Son, took on flesh and became true man, added to his divinity humanity as Jesus of Nazareth, he did so in order to reveal to us, human beings, what God the Father is like, John 1, 14 to 18 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the Father sent the Son into the world to reveal to us what the Father is like. We can't see God with our eyes, but we can know truly what he is like if we look at Jesus. So I say these two things by way of preface because this sermon is structured to help you see truth in this text about Jesus. My hope is that at the end of the day, every sermon I preach is serving that end. Even we're going to pause looking at the gospel of Mark in a couple of weeks. Starting in October, we're going to turn and look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And even as we look at Genesis 1 through 11, my fundamental goal in preaching the Bible is to point you to Christ, through whom you can be forgiven and enter into the eternal family of God, which is the definition of eternal life. And so that you might know and mature in Jesus Christ. Paul said that was the goal of his ministry in Colossians 1, to present everyone mature in Christ. So that's my goal week in, week out. And that's my goal this morning as we look at Mark seven thirty one to 37. So first of all, we see in this text the sort of people that Jesus goes to. We looked last week. At the fact, verse 27, he says his his mission was first of all to the Jews. He says it's not right to give the children, the Jews, bread to the dogs. That, he makes that even more explicit in Matthew 15, 24. John 1, 11 says that Jesus came to his own. But the Jews, the, the earthly people of Jesus, the, the people descended from Abraham of whom he was born... They're not the only recipients of Jesus' ministry and his kindness. The text that we read last week had Jesus moving up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and that's outside of Jewish-held territory up along the, the Mediterranean Sea, and he must have been closer to the city of Tyre than Sidon because we see in verse 31 it says he went up to Sidon, which is about 20 miles north of Tyre. And then he goes back to the Sea of Galilee, and it, Sidon is way out of your way. If you're in Tyre, let me try to flip this map in my head for you. Okay, you're over here in Tyre, and you're trying to get down to the Sea of Galilee. Sidon is up here. And then he comes back down to the Decapolis all the way over here. Like he he skips over Israel and goes down from one Gentile region to another. Why did he do this? We don't know. (laughs) Nobody knows for sure why he did things this way we do know that the route he took takes him even deeper into Gentile lands when he goes up to Sidon. And then from there, as he goes around the Sea of Galilee, he goes to another Gentile region in the Decapolis. The Decapolis had a lot of Jews present, but it was a Gentile-held region. This is where, if you remember, Jesus in chapter 5, drove when he gets down to the Decapolis, that's where he drove legion from the man who was demon-possessed among the tombs into the pigs, and they run down into the the sea, and then the people ask him to leave because they're like, this guy is an economic liability to have around if he's killing our pigs. Jesus Jesus is making a point to spend time with these Gentiles. And we don't know exactly what route he took to go from Tyre up to Sidon and around to the Decapolis. But it's probably a hundred mile plus horseshoe shaped route to stay primarily in Gentile controlled territory during that period of his ministry. So as we think about that, we think about the fact that Jesus was willing to spend time with and minister to people who were by his people considered unclean. It makes me ask, who do I think of subconsciously or maybe consciously as unclean or eh, I don't want to spend time with those people. And then as we think about that, what we need to think about is this. Those are the people Jesus came to spend time with, to love, to save. We see this in the curious case of a man who is deaf and he has a speech impediment. Verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. We, we don't know the exact nature of his speech troubles. He's not totally mute. We don't know whether he had been learning to speak and then went deaf at an early age. So he never really was able to to get speaking down or whether something happened to him that robbed his like had an accident and head injury that robbed his hearing and made it hard for him to speak. We just know that he couldn't speak well. And we do know that he was at this point simply like completely deaf. So we wouldn't have had the same knowledge that everybody else had about this healer from Galilee, who has showed up, Jesus. He, he wouldn't know about Jesus of Nazareth. He wouldn't have been hearing the constant chatter. He wouldn't have been able to hear Jesus teach the multitudes. And and though he may have understood his own need to be saved from his predicament, with his severe speech impediment, he would have had a hard time communicating that with anybody. He would have had a hard time communicating what was going on inside of him. So kids, Wesley, and Owen, and Juna, and Calvin, and Rory. I want you guys to think for a minute. Imagine you're thirsty. Have you ever been thirsty, Wesley? Ever been thirsty? Now imagine you are really thirsty, and you go to ask your parents for a glass of water, but they can't understand you. And so you're standing there thirsty, and you can't reach the faucet for yourself, and you're trying and trying and trying to communicate it, and they can't understand what you're saying, they just shoo you away. How would that make you feel? You frustrated? Maybe you'd be sad because they don't understand you. Maybe you would be mad because you really want this and they're not giving it to you. But one thing is sure, if they if you needed needed water to, to take care of your thirst and then nobody gave it to you and they sent you away, you would definitely still be thirsty. That's how this man's whole life was. He couldn't communicate his needs with anybody. He he couldn't share what was going on inside of him. And because he's unheard by others, he would then probably, just practically speaking, cease to be seen by others. You're not going to pay attention. That person who's quiet in the room, even if they don't have a speech impediment, they tend to just disappear from a lot of people's notice. This man needed healing, but he can't speak to ask for it. And he can't. Here, because he can't hear, he probably doesn't even know who to ask for it. He doesn't know that someone with the power to save is present. But that's where they come in. We don't know who they are, but it says they brought to him. Reminded me of chapter two. It says they brought to him a paralytic in chapter two. That man had four friends, we know, who brought him to Jesus Here it just says they. They bring this man to Jesus. And instead of waiting for some expression of faith on the part of the man who needs healed, Jesus simply agrees to heal him. The man never asks for it. The man doesn't express to Jesus his need. He doesn't say he has faith in Jesus. He just needs healed. And his friends bring him. Who do you know who needs brought to Jesus? Have you... Everyone, that's a good answer. Have you invited them to meet Jesus? Inviting folks to church, having conversations, asking them what they believe, telling them about Jesus. He, he is the only one who can satisfy the deepest needs that we have, whether we actually know or can express our needs or not. We need him. But people don't know that they need him or know that he is the answer to the needs they know they have unless we tell them, unless we bring them to Jesus. So these these people bring the man to Jesus, and this is one of Jesus's stranger miracles. It's one that only Mark tells us about. And in verse 33, it tells us that Jesus took this man aside from the crowd, taking him aside from the crowd privately, it says. He wasn't trying to make a public spectacle of this man. He wasn't trying to make a demonstration out of him. Rather, Jesus cared about him as an individual. He wanted to address his needs. And Jesus deals with us in the same way. He deals with you in the same way. The results of what Jesus does in our life is public. It's going to be obvious to everyone when Jesus heals this man. And they say, this guy couldn't talk. He never heard what we said before. It's going to be public. But it starts with Jesus dealing with an individual, one-on-one. So he pulls the man aside. Again, that's a little abnormal for how Jesus does most of his healings. And then it gets really weird, at least for us as modern readers, right? Jesus sticks his fingers in the man's ears. He's probably getting some nice earwax going on the tips of his index fingers. And then he spits, and we don't know if he spits on the ground or he spits on his hand or he spits on the guy's mouth. We don't know. We just know he spits. I kind of wonder if he does just spit on his mouth because later in chapter 8 when he heals the guy who's blind, he spits in his eyes. After spitting, somehow probably he's using his own saliva and touches the man's mouth with that. And we read that and we think, number one, that's weird. Number two it's super gross <laughs> and it's one of those aspects of this passage that is mysterious. We don't know exactly why Jesus did it this way. We don't he, he doesn't explain to us why he used saliva to heal him but there's two common explanations that I think probably may even both be at play. The first and most basic is that ancient healers often use saliva like if somebody's known as a healer they often use saliva as part of their healing toolkit. Medical value of saliva. I don't know. I've never studied that. Uh, Jesus may simply have just been using an action that would have made sense to the people around him. Would have by by touching the man's ears and then touching his mouth. Remember, the guy can't hear him. Jesus can't explain. I'm going to save you. I will heal you. Be healed. The guy wouldn't hear any of that. He wouldn't know what's going on. So by touching his ears and touching his mouth, Jesus may just simply be making a connection for the guy where he can understand what's about to happen. When, when his ears and his mouth are, are loosed, Jesus, the one who touched him, is going to automatically in his mind be, okay, this guy just healed me. Maybe something to that. The second explanation and the one I'm particularly partial to is that saliva is an unclean substance in the Old Testament. If if I walk by you and I spit on you, now even in our society like that's not a very nice thing to do. It's degrading. It it makes it's like you're treating somebody like they're low, like they're nothing. But in the Old Testament, in addition to that, you've also made them unclean. They would need to go wash themselves to become ceremonially clean again. Here, Jesus uses this substance of degradation, and uncleanness to make the man's body whole, to free him from the bondage of deafness and his speech impediment. And and that has elements foreshadowing what's going to come later on in Mark's gospel, tied to another spitty miracle, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. But that's not the last time that Jesus uses an unclean bodily fluid as a means of salvation for those who are bound. He does the same thing with his blood on the cross. Which brings us to verse 34, the, the nature of his work. When Jesus had stuck his fingers in the man's ears and touched his tongue, he looked up to heaven, he sighed, and he said, which is an Aramaic word meaning be opened. Why, why does Jesus look to heaven and why does he sigh? A sigh all by itself seems kind of ambiguous, Sigh can mean all kinds of things. Maybe Jesus was tired. Maybe he was grumpy. Maybe he was frustrated. Maybe he was sad. Maybe he was praying. All on its own, a sigh seems pretty ambiguous. But if you keep reading on into chapter 8, Jesus sighs again in chapter 8 and verse 12. And there, it's very clearly tied to his frustration over unbelief. Verse 12 of chapter 8 says, He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign?" So there, Jesus is frustrated. Here, it would seem that Jesus is probably angry or frustrated or groaning over the effects of sin in the world. They would put this man in this predicament. The difficulties which this deaf man faced moved Jesus, sighing. He looks up to heaven. It's almost as if he was praying with the psalmist in Psalm 89, how long, O Lord? How long will you allow the effects of sin to crush your creatures? But unlike that merely human psalmist, the Lord Jesus is not powerless. He's not impotent in the face of human suffering. We look at suffering and we say, what can can be done? We look at the craziness in our culture and think, who can save us? We look at the sin in our lives, and sometimes we despair. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer is Jesus. Jesus can save from any circumstance. He stopped, he looked to heaven, and he sighed, but then he spoke. And, and he spoke, Not he didn't pray, he looked at the man, and he spoke. And he said, Ephathah, be open. He speaks to the man's whole being. And the voice which called the stars into existence, the voice which stilled the seas, the voice which blessed bread and multiplied it for 5,000, this same voice spoke to that man, not to his ears or to his tongue, but to the whole man. And he speaks this Aramaic word, Ephatha, be opened, open to hear, open to speak, open to be free from the bondage that had previously owned him. The word of the Lord did not return void. It accomplished the purpose for which he had sent it out. The man, it says, spoke plainly. So it doesn't go from he can't hardly speak at all to now he's talking baby talk and he'll keep learning. No, Jesus heals him completely. He can speak plainly. He can clearly articulate what has been bottled up inside for we don't know how many years. Jesus made this man free. I think Mark includes this because it's an incredibly important miracle. Jesus will ask his disciples in in the text we'll look at next week why they, if they've got ears, don't hear. The the hardness of heart, which we so often see in Mark's gospel, is pictured as a dullness of the ears, a dullness of vision, a dimness of vision. To not hear Jesus clearly speaking and, and to not see him clearly working are signs of spiritual deadness. And there is only one solution, the sovereign work of Jesus to save. He is the one who can open the eyes of the blind. He is the one who can release the ears of the deaf. And when he does so, he will loose our tongues to sing his praises. So verse 36, they say, Jesus charged them to tell no one but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And it's, it's tough to blame them, right? Yeah. If you had known someone who for years is struggling with an inability to speak, who couldn't hear a word of conversation, and now all of a sudden this guy is speaking clearly, you're holding a back and forth conversation because he can understand what you're saying, how would you not tell everyone else that you knew? It would just come up all the time. It's not the sort of thing you keep quiet about. So while Jesus was still not at this point in his ministry seeking the acclaim of the public, he, it came to him nonetheless. And the reason is what we see in verse 37. They were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. That first line right there, he has done all things well. That, that line that the astonished crowd speak, I want to meditate on for the rest of the sermon. Do you believe that Jesus does all things well? This is one of those questions where the rubber of your faith meets the road of life and you find out what quality of spiritual tire you have. My real tires don't have very good quality. I think one of them's flat out there right now. But what what is the quality of your spiritual tire? tires. When you have a flat tire on the side of the highway in the blistering summer heat, do you believe Jesus does all things well? When you or a loved one is diagnosed with cancer and you don't know what's going to happen, has he done all things well? When your child is walking away from the faith or running away from wisdom, has Jesus done all things well? When you are falsely accused and unable to defend yourself from those accusations, has Jesus done all things well? When you're in chronic pain, dealing with physical suffering, maybe suffering under the hand of many physicians, has he done all things well? When you are dealing in your own heart with the same sin over and over and over again, has Jesus done all things well? When you are lonely and feel like no one cares about you or what you're going through, has Jesus done all things well? And to return to our examples at the beginning, when your country is attacked from without or feels like it's splitting apart from within, has Jesus done all things well? Our flesh wants to answer that question with a no. We believe that God owes us an explanation for how he is running the universe. But the fact of the matter is that he doesn't. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His understanding is deeper than we can search out. But we can see what he has clearly revealed. And he has revealed to us that he is not distant from us. The word, the eternal son, did not simply speak words from heaven. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 4 says he did this so that he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it is to have a frail human body subject to pain and suffering and death. He knows the hurt of rejection and betrayal. He knows what it is to have others mock and despise and scorn him. He knows what it is to have his family fractured by allegiance to the kingdom of God. He knows what it is to live under a government concerned with keeping the powerful in power and promoting false worship. There truly is nothing you go through in this life which the Lord Jesus cannot look at and say, I know, I know. The Lord of all the universe will stand by your side and weep with you as you weep. But this text also shows us that in the midst of all that we must trust him and he deserves our trust. Because Jesus did not just come to empathize with us, but to liberate. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came and lived a life that made empathy with us possible. He died an atoning, propitiating death so that we could be forgiven and no longer have to fear death. And he rose from death, conquering the devil who has the power of death so that we no longer have to fear it. The Lord who has power over life and death, the Lord who spoke to the deaf man and removed his speech impediment and opened up his ears and freed him, the same Lord Jesus has the power to free you. If you've not asked for the forgiveness of your sins, you can ask Jesus and he will forgive you and all of your sins will be forgiven. And he also has the power to address every other problem in your life. So ask him for his help. He may change your circumstances or he may in his divine wisdom Be in the process of using those circumstances to change you and shape you into the Christian he wants you to be. I said earlier in the sermon that my goal, the goal of the Bible and my goal in preaching is for you to see and know and then knowing mature into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to understand that that's God's purpose in your whole life. Not just in your Bible reading and sermon listening. God is bringing circumstances to you which, if you respond in faith and trust towards him, will shape you and press you further into and towards him. If he knows all things and if he desires your good and he does, and if he has the power to change your circumstances and he does, and he chooses not to change your circumstances, it is because he. He knows what is best for you and will preserve you through it and change you through it to make you more like Jesus. And so this is what maturity looks like. No matter the circumstances, you look to heaven and you say, he does all things well. And sometimes you will look to heaven with beaming face and rejoice. He does all things well. And sometimes you will look up through hot tears and pray for the faith to believe He does all things well. The mature Christian and the growing Christian on their way to maturity is the one who looks at the work of Jesus in the past and trusts him for the future right now and says, he does all things well. He does all things well. He does all things well. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you do all things well, and we thank you and we trust you, and we pray that you would continue to shape our hearts so that we trust you more every day. In your precious name, amen.